Well, I want to invite you to turn in your bulletin or in your Bible or look on the screen as I'm going to be reading from Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. This was actually a sermon that was supposed to be a few weeks ago, December 13th, but I got sick and we had to rearrange all these sermons in our Advent series. So I'm preaching this today and actually preaching the one for today will come up in March. So we're going to hit all these, but it's just going to take us a little while. So Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13, the parable of the ten virgins. Would you read with me? Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that my words... Lord, would reflect your heart this morning. Lord, I pray, Father, that uh, the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts would reflect, would, would um, be pleasing in your sight. Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So there are two TV shows that have been sort of been a mainstay of the last 20 years of American TV, The Bachelor and The Bachelorette. Uh, the Bachelor, I think it had its 25th epi- uh, season this year, and The Bachelorette, it's, uh, its 16th season. And if you're not familiar with the show, it's a reality TV show where 25 compete for one. So on The Bachelorette, 25 men are competing for the hand of the one woman, The Bachelorette. On The Bachelor. 25 women are competing for the hand of the man, the bachelor. And the show has all of the trappings and looks like everything that Americans think of when they think of romantic love. It's got all the fireworks, they go on great dates, they go on hot air balloon rides and uh, picnics and rides in the park, they wear beautiful clothes, uh, it's they, the music, everything is set up to look like a fairy tale. And yet we know, if, if you're a normal TV watcher, you know that this is TV. This is not real life. In fact, I did some research on both shows. Uh, I found out some things that I didn't know. On the, the Bachelor and The Bachelorette, only one person on each of the shows makes any money. That's the one person that everybody's competing for. They're the only other person. Everybody else competes on the show for free. They leave their jobs. They spend a lot of money on clothes, and they hope that they win, but they don't get paid anything. Uh, this may be not news for some of you, the, the engagement ring that they get to have, the, the, the couple has at the end of the, the, ep, the, the season is not theirs to keep. It's only theirs to keep if their relationship lasts longer than two years. 
Otherwise, they have to give it back. Uh, they don't eat on any of the dates. So it shows all these beautiful, you know, array of food. But one of the, one Bachelor star revealed that they eat in their, uh, ahead of time in their hotel rooms because, quote, nobody looks good on camera while eating. So eat ahead of time. Um, and finally, for the winning couples, the time that they actually spend together is really, really short. One former bachelorette told Women's Health Magazine that when all was said and done, she had spent only 72 hours with the man who won. 72 hours together over a handful of dates. And that's enough to determine we're compatible. It's, it's, it's really, really fast. And so, you know, you know, if you're a discerning TV watcher, that this isn't real. It approximates something real. It can look real. It stirs up emotions within viewers. That's why people watch this show, because it's the fairy tale. It's what we want to believe is true. It's, it's choreography. It's pantomime. It's an act. Uh, you know, today we're finishing up a series in our Advent series on Olive, the Olivet Discourse of Jesus. These are some teachings that he did the last week of his life, right before uh, he was crucified, and it's all about his second coming. And this comes from a long tradition of the church over centuries that has spent some of the season both looking back to Jesus' first advent, but also looking ahead to the advent which is to come, his second arrival, his second coming. And today, we look at this parable that Jesus teaches. And it's much like the bachelor or the bachelorette. It's also about a relationship. It's also about a wedding. And it's also about what looks real versus what is real. So uh, let me give a little credit. I I do want to give credit for a number of things from my teaching to a writer named Ben Witherington um, in a book called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. Uh, Let's walk through this parable together. Jesus starts the parable this way. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven is like, and then he goes on to describe a wedding. And I know that for many of us, you've been to or seen maybe many weddings. Maybe you've been in weddings. But first century Jewish weddings are both very similar and very different from modern American weddings. So let me just kind of define some of this. Uh, How are they different? First, they're way less formal. You know, our wedding celebrations are planned out months in advance down to the minute. I've worked with brides in working, planning for weddings, where everything is set up down to like right at the minute. They have an Excel spreadsheet for the day, and a wedding's about 35 minutes. Uh, In that day, it was much less formal. An entire town would be invited. Uh, the weddings were slower, much more organic. They didn't have a definite start time, and we're going to see this in this parable. Um, and yet, they're similar, too. They're similar in the same, some of the ways that we experience weddings. They're still about family and friends and a celebration. They're still about a big party. And Jesus, it's, it's interesting how often Jesus talks about and points us to weddings. His first miracle was done at a wedding, and he regularly points to weddings and calls himself, in other places, even the bridegroom. If there's something about a wedding that shows us what he's like, what he came to do, and what his kingdom is like. And if you look at this parable, you can see immediately, Jesus embeds himself in the parable. Who's Jesus in the parable? 
Right? It's, it's the groom, right? He's the groom. The bride is not mentioned. We know that there had to be a bride there's, to have a wedding, but she's not really a part of this, the way that the story is told, and yet there's a problem. You know, the problem in this parable is that the groom's delayed. The, the groom is delayed. Now, that, that sounds strange for us. I mean, I got a card in the last two weeks from a couple saying, save the date. Save the date for next October. Like, they already know what day and time everything's going to happen. And yet, that's in first century Palestine, this would have made a lot of sense. Because after the betrothal, after the, the groom asks the bride to marry him, he has to go and prepare. And that, that means literally he has to go and prepare. He goes back home to his parents' house and with the aid of maybe a friend or two, builds a room onto the side of his parents' house. That's where he and his new wife will live. And if you know anything about construction, you know, construction is like an accordion. It can go really short or it can spread out. Sorry, contractors, I'm not trying to beat up on you. But if you've built anything, if you had anything built, you know that construction could take a short period of time, it could take a, a long period of time. And so once the room would be built on and ready, the groom would go back with the friends to the home of the bride and get her, her family, and her friends. And there would be a procession out from her house to his house. And of course, nobody knows when that would be because the construction, um, they would have to be ready. Again, Jesus is teaching all these parables. They start in chapter 24 around this question. Jesus, you're talking about your kingdom coming. When is that going to be? And Jesus has told them, no one knows the day or the hour. Not the Son, not the angels in heaven, only the Father in heaven. Speaking of God the Father, only the Father. And so just like this wedding, Jesus is saying, I'm going to take some time to come back and you don't know when. I don't know when. It's unexpected. And the bridegroom's arrival calls for the bridesmaids who are with the bride waiting at the house to be ready, to be prepared. Um, and it's clearly taking longer than expected. It, all of them fall asleep. He's delayed. Jesus is delayed in coming back like the groom is delayed. Now, all the talk that we have done over these last few weeks may sound strange to you, especially if you're not from one of those branches of Jesus' church that emphasizes all the time looking for Jesus coming back. And there's a tendency, I think, among some Christians to act like, well, that's for the crazy people in Jesus' church, those for the conspiracy theorists and those who like to wear tin hats and prognosticate about the future. Um, but I want to emphasize that the second coming, this is like a major piece of Christian theology real estate. This is a, a big thing, not for a weird branch of the church. This appears in the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed. It's a basic thing, uh, and yet I know it's hard for us to imagine that the Lord Jesus Christ will return to earth and, and set up his kingdom on this soil, not American soil necessarily, on the soil of this planet. And he will set that up and everybody will see it. And people with real bodies will be transformed in a moment into resurrected new creation bodies and will reign and celebrate and live with him on this planet. I mean, it's hard for us to imagine that. But I want to make one observation before we kind of dig further into this parable, and it's this. Did you catch 
just the, the main kind of backdrop to all of this. Jesus' kingdom is a celebration. It's a party. It's all of the best of eating and drinking and laughter and music and friends and family and celebration. Yeah, I don't know what you would consider the best meal of your life, but I can remember at least one of them for me. In about 2009, uh, right before we left Philadelphia to move here, Susan and I went out to eat with friends at this restaurant in downtown Philly called Zahav. It's an Israeli restaurant. And we went with our friends Jeff and Elizabeth King, uh, who were part of our church, uh, and Jeff had a, a job where he was a waiter at one of the really, really top-end restaurants in Philly. And so we go out to eat with them to this restaurant. I'd never been to an Israeli restaurant before, and there were a lot of things on the menu that I wasn't even familiar with. So we're looking over this menu, and Jeff did a lot of the ordering. And he, he's, a, he's a foodie beyond all foodies. I mean, he is, he's one of those people who just loves and savors good food. And so he orders, and the way he ordered must have indicated something to our waiter about this is a guy who really loves food. And see, our waiter told us, I'm sorry, one thing that's not on the menu tonight is the pomegranate leg of lamb. The, I'm sorry, the pomegranate leg, uh, lamb shoulder. Sorry, that's not available tonight. Well, Jeff orders, and about five minutes later, the waiter comes back to our table. And he says, well, we actually found one for you. We found a, a, a pomegranate lamb shoulder for you. And we, we eat this meal, and I can't even tell you most of what we ate that night. It was unbelievable. It was one of the best meals I have ever had. And in fact, the chef came out of the kitchen came to our table to talk with my friend Jeff King because he just savors and enjoys food that much. And he was very intelligent in his conversation about that. And, you know, it was incredible. It was an incredible feast of, like, this unbelievable food, friendship. It's slow. Nobody's in a hurry. When I get home that night, you know, Susan's not like, hey, are you still hungry? I kind of want a sandwich. I mean, no, we had feasted. We had this meal that was just satisfying in every way. I don't know about you, but have you had a meal like that? And maybe it's because of who you're with, or what you're eating, or where you are, but it's one of those meals where, like in Ratatouille, Remy's mouth, you know, like all the fireworks go off because it's that good a meal. And see, this is what Jesus is showing us. This is what his kingdom is like. I mean, too often I'm afraid that a lot of Christians think of the new heavens and new earth. Life on the other side of this life, sort of like a prolonged funeral service. You know, you're wearing uncomfortable clothes. You're in a place you don't want to be in. You don't want to really sing the songs or be part of this. It's uncomfortable in every way. And it's so sad because Jesus uses banquet imagery feasting imagery, celebration, party imagery, over and over. You know, I want you to think about the best meal you've had. And some of your favorite people in the world. Some of your favorite things to drink. Some of your favorite music. 
being played live by the performer that you love. Now, I want you to put that in a blender and hit frappe, right? Like, just blend that up. And Jesus is saying, this doesn't even touch. Your imagination doesn't even touch what my kingdom is like. I mean, it's like pigs in a blanket next to pomegranate lamb shoulder. Can I use that to describe? Is that sacrilegious to talk about that, the the lamb of God? Um, But brothers and sisters, I want us to be people who long for that. You know, if you're going on a vacation, going on a, a trip that you really anticipate, it's really common for people to put pictures of that destination on the wallpaper of their phone or their computer, or even to tape a picture of it on your mirror in your bathroom. And what, what are you doing in that? You're just meditating on, man, I can't wait for that. Jesus holds this up for us, this image of feasting, so that we would long for this. Maybe for the first time. You know, I know that 2020 for many of us has been like someone throwing a bucket of cold water in your face. It's just been a year of disappointment and sadness and frustration. And I hope maybe for the first time it's helped you to embrace like, yeah, this isn't working. This life isn't working. This world is not working. And maybe it allows you to hunger and thirst and put this on your wallpaper and say, I want that. Let's talk about the virgins. Oh, these interesting story. The virgins, what's up with the virgins and the lamps? This is not as foreign a concept as we might think. Virgins, just replace that word with bridesmaids. And this, this story makes a lot of sense to us. Even in our culture, we love weddings that happen in the evening. And there are sparklers. There's uh, dim lighting and, and, and lights in the dusk. I mean, this is a very common picture, even in our weddings, of the bridesmaids and some lighting. So the bridegroom is gone, and these ten bridesmaids are tasked with having lamps that are prepared so that when the groom and his friends come back, they are to light these lamps and take them with them on the journey to the groom's house. They're to light the pathway for the wedding party to go to the groom's house for the celebration. And while they have have these lamps that are uh, like big dome-shaped contraptions made out of pottery with a rag in them, and have oil in the bottom, and you had to have, most cases, extra oil to be able to dump in to be able to keep it lit over a long period of time. Um, this is a very common first century phenomenon. So um, let's think about the virgins. All ten of them are bridesmaids. It's not like five of them were the responsible ones, and five are kind of the flakes, you know, and the, and the the, the bride was like, well, I guess I have to ask those friends too. No, no they were all tasked with the same thing. They were all tasked. And, and notice this. All of them fall asleep. I think that's something I didn't notice when I first looked at this. It's not like that there are five bad ones who fall asleep and five good ones who stay awake. No, all ten fall asleep. All of them got drowsy. All of them fell asleep. But here's the difference. Five fell asleep in a wise kind of way, and five fell asleep in a foolish kind of way. And those are Old Testament categories. Those don't mean the good ones and the bad ones. It's the wise and the foolish. 
So we need to think about this. Who are the bridesmaids? If Jesus is, it's a parable. It's meant to communicate something. Who are the bridesmaids? Who would we put in that category? Well, think about the bridesmaids. These are not just people who've been invited to the wedding. These are people that have been invited, have been tasked with a responsibility, who identify themselves in a very significant way with this bride and this groom. Like, they're in. These are people who are actively identified with a wedding and the activity of the wedding. So who would that be for us? I think it's members of a local church. I think it's members of a local church. Theologians make a distinction which may be kind of new to us, but if you think about it for a moment, it makes a lot of sense. They talk about the difference between the visible church and the invisible church. Now, here's what that means. The invisible church is the church from God's perspective, and it's all people who are His in all times and all places in history. And only he can see that, right? He can see all those people who are all of his sheep in all of time and history. And of course, we can't see that. We see only what? The visible church, right? And that's the church from our perspective. The church from our perspective, uh, our point of view. It's those who profess faith and their children who are part of a local congregation. Uh, This is how this works out in our church. You know, when someone wants to become a member at CTK, we say, you're going to need to meet with an elder. And an elder sits down with that person and doesn't give them a theology exam. It's not a, uh, are you ready to be a pastor tomorrow exam? It's a, they, they ask questions to say, does this person appear to understand the gospel? Have they owned Jesus and his death and resurrection for themselves? And of course, an elder can't see perfectly in that moment or even many years after unfailingly, if that's true, if that person really is in Christ or really is not in Christ. I mean, they can look at the fruits of the person's life, but they can't, they can't totally see that. So we do what we can. We identify the visible church as we can. And the visible church are all those people, all of you, who are invited, and every Sunday we do this, invited to the feast, invited and and when you join a church, you identify yourself. You say, I'm identifying self with the bride and the groom, with Jesus and his people. I'm identifying myself. I'm, I'm owning some responsibilities as part of this. I'm, 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 in, I'm in. That's what you say. But here's the thing. The difference between the wise and the foolish is not good and bad. It's something else. It's the oil. Let's talk about the oil issue. You know, the wise bride, bridesmaids trim their lamps by having an extra flask of oil that they add to replenish the lamp. Now, you may look at this scene and be like, man, this feels like New Testament version of Mean Girls. You know, you've got the five wise ones and the five foolish ones are like, hey, can you loan us a little oil here? And they're like, negative, sorry, nope, not going to do that. Maybe you're like, that's really mean. Why would they do that? Well, it's not harsh. If you think about it, if they have, if the, the wise ones brought just enough oil to replenish their lamps and they share it, that's going to mean they're not just five lamps that don't work anymore, they're ten. And so they're actually 
saying, yeah, you got to go get your own oil. They tell the foolish ones, you got to go shopping right now. Go out and go shopping right now. And so uh, while they're gone to get more oil, of course, the groom comes back and the wedding takes off just with the five of them. The five other ones are gone. So what is the oil? You know, it, it would be a, a mistake to look at this parable and say, okay, Jesus' main point must be never fall asleep. I mean, you got to get it right. You know, like, you got to be one of those people who's like, I'm always awake for Jesus' coming back. As if you're supposed to live your life on pause. You know, you got to live on DEFCON 5, red alert. Jesus could come back tomorrow, hit the panic button. I need to not apply for that job, not apply for school, um, not move on with my life, not pay the bills. And actually, there's a, there's a book in the New Testament um, that's about a church that lives that way. But that, that isn't Jesus' point, which is you can't fall asleep ever. Now, the, the difference is falling asleep in a wise way and falling asleep in a foolish way. I mean, the bridesmaids who didn't have any extra oil, they, they ran out to the local 7-Eleven or Sheets, you know, they ran out to get some more oil. And when they show up at the groom's house, and it's hard to imagine how this looks, but they show up at the groom's house, the door's shut. And they call out, they say, hey, let us in. And the groom sticks his head out the door at the window, maybe, and says, I'm sorry, I don't know you. This is, where, this is where this parable begins to get hard. Why does he say, I don't know you? This is where we move away from parable and more toward Jesus' instruction for us. In Matthew 7, Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, gave this illustration about those who come to him at the end and say, Lord, Lord. And Jesus says, I don't know you. That word know there doesn't mean I don't recognize you. It means I don't acknowledge you as part of my people. This is a, a phrase that's used over and over in the Bible. In Genesis 18, it says God knew Abraham, acknowledged he was part of his people. In Exodus 33, God knew Moses. In Nahum 1, God knows those who are his. Uh, in John 10, Jesus says, I'm a good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, and they follow my voice, and they do what I say. Knowing is being one of his people. So when Jesus says, I don't know you, to those bridesmaids, the foolish bridesmaids, and to people today, that should rattle us a little bit. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said of this, he says, you know, the coming of God truly is good news, but it's also frightening news for anyone who has a conscience. Only we have felt the terror of this can we feel the kindness of it. See, Jesus is kind in giving this parable. He's saying, there's a warning here. Are you for real? Are you for real? See, what does it mean to be ready? It's not about morality. It's not the good ones do everything right, and the bad ones don't. Uh, it, it's the wise and the foolish. Both of them fall asleep. It's not about moral perfection or getting it right all the time. It's about the oil. See, the oil shows us there are some things that you have to have for yourself. You can't borrow. You have to own them for yourself. 
In the Old Testament, if you go back and do a study on oil, like what does oil represent, you'll find that God instructed his people to use oil for the consecration of priests and prophets and kings. And it symbolized the presence of God's Holy Spirit. In fact, there's an interesting picture, Zechariah, the prophet. He he gives this illustration. He he saw this vision of a giant golden lampstand, picture like a giant menorah, and on either side of it was an olive tree and an olive tree. And they were dripping oil. And this is what, they dripped oil into these bowls that fed the lampstand and fed the fire of this this big lamp. And, And this is what Zechariah said. As he saw this, this is what he's told by God. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Right? The oil represents the spirit of God. The spirit of God. Uh, And it creates light. And the light of the spirit operates today like it did then. And it shows us this brightness that shows off both the beauty and holiness of God and also the failures and sins of his people. Right? It does both. Um, I wonder if your house, none of us probably have oil lamps that we use regularly, but I bet a lot of you have flashlights, right? Like, and this is a really bright one. I, I, you know, I, a flashlight that's really, really bright. And I want, I want to use this to think about what the Spirit's job is to do. If the Spirit is the one who brings this light, the job of the Spirit is to do two things. To shine this incredible light onto Jesus. To show who he is, what his attributes are, how glorious he is, how desirable he is. And at the same time, the Spirit's light shines on us. You know, you go to a restaurant, they don't turn the lights up really, really brightly, do they? A really nice restaurant, they dim the lights. Because everybody looks good under dim light. Under bright light, you see all the wrinkles and the defects. You see all the things that are wrong, even wrong with your food, right? So like the Spirit, the Spirit shines brightly, showing us Christ and showing us ourselves. He brings conviction of sin and conviction of righteousness. That's the role of the Spirit. He makes Jesus look really good because Jesus is really that good. See, there's a regular dynamic in the life of a real Christian, a a wise bridesmaid. And it goes like this. More and more of seeing our need for Jesus, more and more of wanting Jesus, more and more of loving the beauty of Jesus, more and more of moving toward Jesus. See, that's why the wise bridesmaids have an abundance of oil. That's why they have an abundance of oil. There's a regular wanting... Regular wanting to confess and repent of sin and move toward Jesus. Not one and done, not one time in your life, but regularly, a regular pattern of this. This is a regular thing that happens in the life of a wise bridesmaid, of a real Christian. You know, when I say the word repentance, sometimes people think, oh, you Christians, you just love to feel bad. As if the point of our doing the confession of sin in our service, or calling ourselves to repent is about feeling really bad that is not at all the point that's a uh, 
repentance is not about feeling bad. It's wanting Jesus more. It's about wanting Jesus. It's about desiring him, about understanding the deep need that you have and the deep fountain of grace that he gives. See, repentance is about a ferocious desire to know Jesus more deeply, experiencing more and more of conviction of sin and the bright light of the Spirit. And you know you're ready to repent when you go like, I want to change, I just don't know how to. That's the life of repentance. And that's the difference, really, between wise and foolish bridesmaids. I mean, everybody experiences some awareness of sin in your life. I hope you do. I hope there's some experience of that in in your relationships, in your work. You realize that you you hurt people. You do things wrong. You're, You're selfish. And everybody, except for maybe a sociopath, would feel bad about those things. But a foolish bridesmaid runs from that feeling and runs from seeing that. And so no oil. You know, a foolish bridesmaid tries to minimize those, those feelings. A wise bridesmaid runs to Jesus. Yeah, a wise bridesmaid has extra oil because he or because she runs to Jesus and not away in moments of conviction of sin. See, remember, it's not about moralistic perfection. All of them fall asleep. It's about wise and foolish. Five fell asleep in a foolish way. Five fell asleep in a wise way. You know, holiness in the life of a believer is also not what most people think it is. It's not some kind of, you filled up some kind of goodness in your life. And you're just a really, really good person. In the Bible, we see holiness is a dynamic. It's a regular movement toward the light of the Spirit inside of you. It's not about being perfect or better than other people. It's what's happening on the inside as you're constantly running to Him. You know, there are just some things that you can't borrow. You can't borrow. You have to have them for yourself. Holiness is one of those things. This is why in Hebrews we read, Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So here's the question for us this morning. Are you for real? Are you for real? Are are you a wise or a foolish bridesmaid? So sure, you're here as a part of the visible church. That's a great thing. You've received the invitation. You're identified with Jesus and his people. You've even maybe owned some responsibilities. But only the Lord knows who are his, who are really his. And it's demonstrated by a lifestyle of running to him in moments of conviction or running away from him. Now, that makes a lot of sense in light of this teaching on eternity. One, one uh, old Anglican preacher, J.C. Ryle, said this, you know, it doesn't make a sense how many people will say things like this, well, you know, I hope to get to heaven one day. He said, you know, would you enjoy it? If you run from Jesus in this life, are you going to run to him in eternity? Are you going to want to be with him? See, here's the question. Are you for real? You know, back to the bachelor and the bachelorette, when I was looking up stats on how many of the couples actually last, I came across this story that really grabbed me. A few years ago, one former bachelorette named Deanna Pappas, she she had everything set up with uh, 
one of the contestants named Michael. She was engaged to him on the show. And later on, she ends up marrying his twin brother. This is, in other words, she discerned that something about the relationship that he, she had on the show, while it looked real, it was filmed with all these glorious dates and all the trappings of like love and romance. It sounded real. It had all the glitz and glamour. It wasn't real. And then she did something that was both really brave and really crazy. She broke it off. She broke off the relationship only to find real love, lasting love, with the contestant's twin brother. And I love this story because it looks the same, but it's completely different. So here's my invitation. Maybe this morning, you've recognized something in you is a foolish bridesmaid. That your faith looks real from the outside, you're part of the visible church, but when, it, when it's really all said and done, it's not. I mean, there are just some things you can't borrow. It's not real. And the bravest thing that you can do today, maybe you feel like the craziest thing, is like Deanna Pappas. And it's to reject the fake and embrace the real. You know, I want you to really think about this. I mean, this is so important. Eternity is on the line. The wisest thing you can do if you discover that you're a foolish bridesmaid is ask God to make you wise. To help you see eternity is on the line. There will come an end of this life and even this age where we stand before the Lord Jesus and he either says, I know you, welcome in to the party, or I never knew you. I never knew you. Look, this matters. It makes all the difference in the world. So I want to invite you this morning, whether you're here with us, present, or you're home, to examine your hearts. You know, every time we come to the table together, we have an opportunity Jesus has laid out clearly before us. You know, we, we get to see his body, his blood for us. And it's a moment for us every week of self-examination and also looking to him. It actually models exactly what the Spirit does. The Spirit that makes Jesus look really good and helps me see how much I need him. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would help us Help us, Lord, in the light of the Spirit this morning, Lord, to know if we are for real or not and to run toward Jesus. Lord, all of us need the same thing. All of us have the same problem and all of us need the same thing, more of him, more delighting of him, more knowing him, more running to him. Lord, we pray that you would make us wise bridesmaids. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.